Welcome to the Alder Podcast. I am Michael Davidson, CEO of Alder. So we're a community of influential people. We're all committed to igniting generational leadership. Our pursuit is to act today to live a legacy that ensures a flourishing future for generations to come. Now, you're probably tuned in because, like us, you wrestle with the big questions. What future do we want for our children? Who do we need to be right now to make that future possible? Join us as we engage with some baller and stoked citizens who show up with brain power, with heart, and experience. Together, we'll explore some key themes. The sacredness of liberty, the importance of living rather than leaving a legacy, and, of course, the role of leadership in it all. Topics will have range. I'm talking politics, history, civics, culture, economics, education, national security, shoot, patriotism, parenting, party time. We don't shy away from the tough discussions. With a smile, some humility, and maybe some occasional swagger, we just lean right in. So our impact, it comes through you. So we hope to inspire you to grow wiser, to build some community, and be a force for positive change. So buckle up for this lifelong journey. Let's go. So I recently sat down with my good friend, Brian Ferguson, to reflect on the recent Alder delegation to Ukraine. Now, Brian's a member and a leader in the Alder community. He's a former Navy SEAL. He's an entrepreneur in the fields of healthcare and human performance. He's also, by the way, a pretty cool dad and a great friend. So Brian, he cares pretty deeply and thinks pretty differently about what's going on in the world, uh, from everything from global security to parenting to culture to the world our kids are gonna grow up in. And his perspective, he kind of leads me through a conversation, he layers in some of his perspective, but it tries to contextualize the experience that we had, our community had when we visited Ukraine and the impact it had on us, the impact it's having on the people of Ukraine, the impact it's having on the idea of freedom around the world and geopolitics. So I'm super grateful that Brian uh, teed this up and I hope you enjoy learning about our experience and the lessons of it. We just did a trip less than a couple months ago to took about 15 of our members to Ukraine. I could have read a hundred books and not come back with the level of perspective and knowledge after being there. And I get to, and so I thought we could explore it from a bunch of different angles, you know, sort of round it out for a lot of the members who weren't there or haven't been an event where we're talking about it. But what makes this even better is I get to have the conversation with you, national security, intellectual, healthcare entrepreneur and patriot. And so you get to talk to Brian Ferguson. So Brian had a background in, uh, in national security in the Navy, also worked at the White House, also was a Navy SEAL working for the, you were on the SEAL delivery team and team seven, correct? And I'm glad I didn't, I'm glad I just screwed that out. Group three, yeah. There you go. Wow, I'm good. (laughs) But not as good as you, I I wasn't a SEAL. So given you have a background in national security and you're gonna be able to even piece together things that I I don't even fully understand or specifics, but it would be cool to have this conversation with you. Like what are things that run through your mind or what are things that you're curious about? You're also a member, you're also on the board. so So having this conversation with you, we get to look at it from all kinds of different angles. Yeah, so uh, those who are listening, this is kind of fun. Our, one of our first recordings, and I'm obviously in Nashville with Michael. And actually, the reason I wanted to have this, I couldn't go on the trip. And I know there was an event in Seattle that had a lot of fanfare, and people really raved about the discussion that happened after the trip. We did a small event here in Nashville, and and Michael gave some reflections. But actually, I think for me, I, you know, I spent roughly 15 years of my life pretty deep in the national security terrain, initially 
you know, the White House and the Pentagon, more on the policy side. I was a very low level staffer, but I was day to day just thinking about these things constantly. The implications of a war, the implications of, you know, a proxy conflict with Russia and the future of security and energy. And, you know, I've been out of the military now for seven years and my day to day is consumed as an entrepreneur in healthcare. And my day to day knowledge of national security has wildly atrophied. And while I have paid attention to Ukraine, I'm actually almost embarrassed at kind of the very limited knowledge that I have of everything from like the deeper history to just the current state of operations there. So I have a lot, I'm eager to just learn from you. I've got some basic questions. I also think the juxtaposition that's fresh for me is having seen how much, having really seen from the beginning of the Afghan campaign to the end, how we can become mired in conflict very quickly. And the implications that has everything for you know national resources to the the cost at the individual level to soldiers. So maybe start with the moment that when you and the delegation were in Ukraine, you felt the most kind of profound understanding of the consequence of, of what you described as this conflict. Well, and let me qualify it as quickly as I'm sharing my. I think I'm a relatively informed, and at least I try to be an engaged citizen. And so I try to pay attention to these things and I was able to be there with our members, but I'm not an expert. So I don't want this to come across like I'm trying to pass this more. You know, I'm just sharing my reflections and experience. But, but for listeners, it's also the important of delegations because it is a way to get up close and see things through the experts who are with you, the people on the ground. So you are certainly way up the curve compared and have fresh hours that I think everyone listening is probably interested to, to filter through. Uh, well, I would say something on that. I mean, the, the whole point of open and active learning is I think that's impactful in and of itself. Before we were even going to Ukraine and before we've gone on any of our delegations, Russia, China, France, Poland, Germany, uh, Rwanda, you name it, we're often asked, especially by people from abroad, like, why? What's the point? And this whole idea of just being informed and connected to world events and history is sort of foreign to other people. I think it's a very uh, American thing to kind of go with a community of people to learn and grow and figure out a way to be involved. So when we were doing this in Ukraine, it was like, why are we going? Well, we kind of just, this is a really important thing going on in the world and we want to learn about it. And we were careful not to prescribe some outcome because then we would have engineered the trip to for that outcome as opposed to engineer the trip to get perspective. And I'm glad we did have a more open design principle for it because as a result of that, the 15 members ended up deploying over $3 million in different ways to the effort. And so after the trip, after the trip. Wow. And so some of that is, there was some, some investment leading up to the trip that members got involved in because we had a number of members that were really active and helping the people on the ground there. And so one vertical aid was around everything from like, we had a member who has a close friend and she's a refugee now living in the United States and her brother though is on the front lines and they don't easily get equipment. And so members and others rallied to get like a pickup truck to the front line or get resources. They can get fuel, medical equipment, you name it. Yeah. Um, helping families. There's another one around the future of Ukraine. Uh, just like here, you have to fight for the values that you want to animate the people going forward. And so one meeting we had was with the head of the Keep School of Economics. And so they're really going to be educating the next generation of Ukrainians to appreciate free and open societies and markets. And then there were others that in invested in mil tech, military tech and some other things. And so in a number of different ways, it resulted in a lot of output. But if our members came home and had different discussions 
thought about their own sense of purpose, the things that they prioritize, more special time with their family, read the news differently, understood politics differently, just by being there, I think that would be impactful enough. So I'll say that. But now I'll get back to your question. The The whole trip was profound, but even just setting this, there was, there was one day that blew my mind, but I think something that set the stage for us, three quick things. One, the first we met in Warsaw and I remember the night, the night before our first dinner, I went to go visit a monument and pay respects to, there's a monument called the Little Insurrectionist. And it's, it's literally a, a monument to a child soldier. And so this soldier, the child is wearing oversized because he's a child, a Nazi gear, gun, helmet, because it was so bad in Poland that children had to fight for their freedoms, get through the source system, you name it. And it, it was just a reminder that this wasn't too long ago. You know, this was World War II, and then they were oppressed in the Cold War by the Soviets. And so we have this conversation the first night with uh, a guest who has a lot of experience in national security. We're not able on the record to disclose exactly what, what he did. But he really set the stage for us and said, to really understand what's going on with the Ukrainian people, you have to understand the Maidan Revolution, which they called the Revolution of Dignity, and that was in 2014, not long ago, in Poland. You know, this was in Ukraine. And so we had the conversation in Poland, got it. but this is, yep. he's setting the stage to understand what's going on there. You really got to understand the Maidan revolution. And so that's the stage. I'll come back to that a little bit later, but that was pretty profound to understand how hungry the Ukrainian people are to be both safe from Russian oppression and just free to determine the course of their own lives and their own system. So that was, that was powerful. Also, we get our security briefing. There are three kind of terrifying elements of our security briefing. One, there are as many landmines in Ukraine as you could fill Great Britain, put there by the Russians over the years. So that meant that if, uh, as we were in our motorcade, so to speak, is heading into Kyiv, we had to make sure that, you know, you don't wander off in the grass. We, you know, we stop at the gas station or we got to change a tire, do not wander off. How does it might be randomizing with that reality? They have, in some cases, they're just aware of it. In some cases, they have workings of, uh, to confirm that some place has been cleared. Other cases, you just don't know. So they're just careful. I'll come, I'll come to that of like just observing how, and you would know this way better than me, but uh, how people adjust to living in a war zone. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we were moving in as Russians were moving short range nukes into Belarus. We were, as, they, as those nukes were moving west, we were moving east. So we were like moving into the zone. That was sort of ominous to think about. And then we're getting briefed. And there are the, by the way, these on like mobile trucks, essentially. Yeah. yeah. In Belarus, the Russians yeah. were. And so, and so that was just terrifying uh, to think about. And so we're having to get some conversations about like, well, if, depending on wind, we may not be going back to Poland. We might be going south to escape by boat and blah, blah, blah. And then thirdly, the other one terrifying point was Russia was accelerating. They were already sending missiles and drones, drone attacks into Kyiv and they were accelerating them. So they were doing them every day, not sometimes twice a day. Most of the time they would do them at night, but this time they were sometimes doing them during the day. And so we're getting briefed on what's it like to what happens? Like, what do you do when you get in a mm -hmm. bomb shelter? How do you know? Blah, blah, which I've never been in an experience like that. And so when, and when we get to Kiev, we have all of this in our mind. And the first night we're walk, we're leaving the hotel, walking to go to our dinner with this brilliant professor. Rajman and, and had an awesome dinner with him, delicious at a, at a Georgian restaurant and talking about the, uh, the morale, the leadership. But also as we're walking from the hotel to dinner, I'm hyper aware that a, 
an attack could come at any time. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing the Ukrainians, it, it, the city's not at full capacity, but it's active. Like, you know, you go to McDonald's, you go to a restaurant, you go to the bar. Yeah, I think it's an important point just for our membership and people listening, because it's when someone says, hey, they're going to Ukraine, the average person says, well, they're at war with Russia. And you think of that as a very kinetic, chaotic environment. And certainly at times it is. I think the reality of these sustained conflicts is they become sort of intermittent like that. So, so bizarrely, life moves on. And that juxtaposition, I think, can feel strange, particularly for a group of American leaders or visitors to come in and see kind of the ominous reality that life is moving on, but there's still this backdrop that at any moment there could be a significant event. Yeah. And, to, and when, you're, when you're exhausted, and they, 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 I think the Russians definitely know this, that if you're tired, they're just kind of keeping you up and messing with you. But for the Ukrainians at large, sending the, the drones and missiles in, one, British and American missile defense take them out, but debris kills people. And and then you just always got to go to the shelter and do the thing and to protect yourself. But what was, it was interesting, one, when I when I went in and I'm watching people walking, jogging in the park, at the bar, sort of like, what? Mm -hmm. This is weird. And then I noticed there were memes and stuff on American social media about, oh, look at these silly Ukrainians. I thought they were at war. What are they doing at McDonald's? And so you, it, it's really sort of uh, very ignorant because when you see them there, they're just trying to get on with their yeah, life. Yeah. And there's definitely missiles because I saw them in the sky yeah. and there's definitely the sirens. But I did notice that when I, when we rolled in, I kind of had the mindset of, you know, I think I'm just going to stay in the hotel. I think I'm, I'm good. I don't think I need to go out here. But literally one day in, and especially one day we were out and about going traveling around different parts of the city. But one day in, I was like, I sort of started having the attitude of, I'm, I'm going to go on with my life while I'm here. Yeah, yeah. And if it, if it comes, it comes. It's interesting. I think that happens for most people in, you know, in military deployments, any people who are humanitarian workers, you go in again, the juxtaposition of the American way of life versus where you end up and thinking about being safe there. And then once you get there and settle in, you realize that you almost the only natural way to, to move forward without being totally overcome by some degree of paralysis is you have to integrate. And, and, and I, the psychology that is really interesting. And the flip side of that, I think, is that for the people living there, like what we know about children growing up in that environment is their nervous systems are more taxed because at the end of the day, you can't ignore the fact that you're still in yeah. a war zone. You can move on with life and you can do your best, but you still have this subtle thing in the back of your head. You know, when I when, when well to that point is I did decide to go on my life and walk around and, and, and enjoyed myself. I had to go buy something at the mall. You know, so yeah. I was just out and about. But I totally noticed at the end of the trip when we crossed the border into back into Poland, I could literally feel myself relax. Yeah, exhale. Yeah, yeah. to yeah. really relax. But, so that was profound, but I think the, there was one day in particular when we were there as we went to Berpin, another town I can't pronounce, and and Busha and Babinyar. And so this day, this day was, it was the full range. I mean, it was profound because you saw the full range of everything crystallized and you saw the full range of what they're, what's at stake, what they're fighting for and how bad it is. So we went to Urpine and met these like Ukrainian militia guys. They're just working class dudes who, when the Russians came in and tried to take Kiev, they fought them off before the army arrived. And so they made, they dumped so trenches. These are not soldiers. These are basically just random just, dudes, yeah, man. Yeah. Tough as nails. Right. I mean, they're all kind of soldiers now, but, and they would talk about, they would have, they makeshift drones, weapons. Mm -hmm. They put up 
their artillery, but they didn't have much. To, they, they put it in, in line of sight for the Russians, for the Russians to think they had more than they did. And so these guys, just meeting them and seeing how proud they were of fighting them off, and they were successful. Like Russia did not take heat. And now all, I think, Russia thought that they were going to take the whole freaking country right away. They did it. And in large part, it's because of people like this. And yeah. so we, you would see these social media things of uh, back at the start of the war of like the old Ukrainian lady, the grandma yeah. who's smacking a Russian. Like that's true. Like right, that right. spirit of them, it's, it's fully true. I thought it was kind of like one-off stuff, but it's true because you meet these guys, they're like that. And then we went to this town and met with the mayor and I'm looking at apartment buildings and schools and things that are just bombed out totally mobbed out. And so it was very clear the Russians wanted to destroy them. And then we went to Busha, where there was a massacre, women and children, hundreds, and then all these, uh, this is where they had a bunch this of- really early on in the conflict. Very early on yeah. in the conflict. Russians were in, in, in Kiev and they, a lot of women and children were killed execution style. And they left a lot of the body bags and because they were trying to hide them all at, at, at St. Andrew's Church. And so that's obviously really heavy, seeing mm -hmm. the pictures and meeting people whose lives were affected. I had a real, the real crystallizing moment was when we went to Bob and Yar, one of the horrors, this is a Holocaust memorial site where about 100 to 150,000 Jews were killed. I mean, murdered, slaughtered, tragically. And the stories are graphic of what happened. SS soldiers would be shooting, mass killing them so much that they'd break their finger from having to pull the trigger on the gun so much. Some SS soldiers reported later going mad, rivers of blood bodies stacked up one apartment another and they've turned this now into a really beautiful park with a lot of artwork to to memorialize it which is weird that you know russia calls ukraine an anti-semitic uh neo-nazi state and you're at this uh, yeah. major memorial site but we were there we were meeting with these the curator of the museum but then we also met with that went to an art exhibit and at this art exhibit you had this beautiful artwork that is celebrating Ukrainian soldiers, specifically from the Battle of Mirafol, where they held the line against really overwhelming uh, Russian attacks. And these soldiers were ordered to surrender, ordered to surrender because they were not going to surrender at the steel, steel plant. And I'm, I'm kind of taking in the artwork, I'm taking in the story from the Battle of Mirafol. And then I look at the artist, and the artist literally looked like he could be in Berkeley, California. And he's, you know, kind of wearing really circular glass, circle glasses and he has kind of like a trench coat shirt, but not jacket. Like he just was, you know, bohemian hipster. And he is so proud of the soldiers and he's using his art to tell their story and the story of the Ukrainian people. And it just hit me. We met with the people in the one town, in the two town Busha and the other one. We met with these guys in Rapine that were rugged and they were meeting with this artist guy. And it was, it hit me that universally, they all have different politics. But universally, they want to be free and they want to survive. And that just ran deep. And it, that was the moment. I don't know if I'd go, I, I guess it, more crystallizing than profound. Mm -hmm. But that was the moment when I like, these people are not quitting. Yeah. This is real. Is it? Is a whole thing, especially today in America about nation building and a real aversion to that um, for understandable reasons. But this is, these are healthy people that are not, they don't just want Russia to go away. They don't just want to be safe. They are willing and have demonstrated an ability to fight like hell. Yeah, that's true. So they they want it. That yeah. the will, the will is there, and that was the biggest takeaway for me of the the will and the commitment 
of the Ukrainian people to be free. And that unfortunately is the thing that just does not get told mm -hmm. and share enough here. You get a lot of stories like, you know, Zelensky's the time magazine guy of the year. Mm -hmm. It should be the Ukrainian people mm -hmm. and no disrespect to him. Um, but it's just, we tend to kind of very reductive conversations mm -hmm. about it here. It's about like Russia, NATO, foreign policy, Zelensky, corruption, Biden, uh, and all these things are, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not important. They are, uh, and they, they need to be explored and discussed, but what gets overlooked is these are real people fighting like hell. How do you, and that's maybe a good segue because it's powerful. I mean, there was that shared resolve in any conflict. And I think this has probably been one of the more fascinating subtexts of plot is that clearly that wasn't the case on the Russian side. And so that they underestimated that. Yeah. And, and I think even in their own military didn't have that same result. No. And so we're now, I mean, how, how many months into the conflict? 14 months? One year more. 15, 16. Well, so either way, well over a year into the conflict. Yeah. And when, by the way, an American intelligence and Russian and all Western countries thought it was going to be over. Absolutely. Immediately. Yeah. And I think that is maybe what's been. If I even think just in the sort of cultural narrative in the U.S. of when it started versus now, there was this underestimation, nervousness that this was going to potentially be everything from World War III to some kind of you know massive power shift to then saying, okay, that's clearly not the case. We the the Russians underestimate the Ukrainians, the we overestimate the Russians, but here we are and find ourselves now in a national debate in the in America about what should support look like. And where is that support going? And so there is this incredibly powerful, to that point, resolve of the Ukrainian people. But when you left there, I'm curious, how do you think about what that looks like from both, I'd say, an American support perspective and those those militia guys you met early on, the, the initial militia that, that held the Russians, they're now a year and a half nearly into a conflict. Like That's not a sustainable lifestyle. So where does it go from here? Like, I'm just curious what, what you're. Uh, one thing, one takeaway for me was that it could go in a lot of different directions. Like there was a whole wave of things that we live at a time where we want things to be neat and simple and measured. One, human beings aren't like that. Three people in societies aren't like that. And war is definitely not like that. And you get a lot of the binary view of uh, trying to make sense of risk, nukes or not, boots on the ground or not. And one takeaway for me was that there's a, ton of different scenarios uh, and tons of different ways to help. I, I would say that one, the Ukrainian people, I didn't really talk to anybody that wanted us to send troops. They're like, just give us weapons and resources so we could arm our own troops. Mm -hmm. And they believe that if, if they have the help, they'll, they'll survive. One night we did an evening with, we were with there with the Cypher Brief and they've shown sure you mentioned what that Cypher Brief, they, they do basically war, a very specialized, thoughtful journalism about conflict war and conflict. Like one of the better or more respected national security yeah. media outlets. Very smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we were the part of participating in a conference with them and Joe Petraeus and some others. And so this one in Poland or this in? was in Ukraine. This was okay. in Kiev. Got it. And just yeah. quickly, why did you guys meet in Warsaw? Was that just as just a staging. point of convening? And then yeah. In and out. And did you fly in or convoy in? We've, we flew into Warsaw and then okay. we convoy, we drove. You could get to Kiev through by train. Or, and they have a really elaborate train system, yeah. like big, big essay profile in the New York Times or New Yorker or something about how important the trains are mm -hmm. to resourcing. We met with the guy who runs the trains and that was fascinating how they thought about that as a resource. But when we 
you could also go in by motorcade and or car. So we had like five Mercedes printers, which we were also alerted that that kind of makes us a target, yeah. like a very obvious bunch of black Mercedes vans coming in. But that was how we went and we chose to go that way because we wanted latitude and freedom and flexibility in case things went poorly to get in or out. But you can't fly into Ukraine. It's a no-fly zone. So you, you got to get into the country through the borders, yeah. train or drive. So we drove. But when we were one night with the cipher brief, they, they did an event with veterans of the war. Many of them were still active. They're just kind of on leave. But one, Treyas gave a talk to the veterans about them being the greatest generation of Ukraine in the way that, you know, our greatest generation in America, you know, defeated Nazism, fascism, and Imperial Japan, and then re- and then built American life and society. And we're still living off the endowment of, of everything that they've done. And he was really putting that in perspective that not only do they have to win the war, then they have to win the peace, and then they have to rebuild their country. Like, this is a tall order for them. But I'm, there were a few of the soldiers that I met from the Azov Brigade. That's the group that Putin says are all Nazis. And there's a lot of history there between them and Russia. But we met with some guys for Azov Brigade, just some rank and file soldiers, and some were POWs. I was hanging out with two of them. One was, was, got, was in a prisoner swap, and he had tattoos. And he was showing me how in a Russian prison, and if you have tattoos, they will target you. And so he was showing me how they would pour boiling water on his skin uh, with the tattoo and then and then scrub it with rock. But when I would ask them, how does this end? What's success look like? You know, is it Ukrainians win or just not lose? Or, you know, what are what are these different ways to look at it? And and they would pretty consistently say 91 borders. They want it from when they declared independence in 1991 from the Soviet Union, that should be the country that mm-hmm. they know. And in so for context for for people listening, how how much of the borders changed in like what what are the biggest well, Crimea was, uh, let me give you a quick history on this, if that's okay. Really fascinating. One, hundreds of years, the Russians have been kind of trying to control the Ukrainians. And a takeaway for me was that Ukrainians are a lot more like the, the Poles than they are the Russians. But going there. Culturally. And, culturally, a lot of different mm-hmm. uh, qualitative kind of measures. Mm-hmm. The Whereas, admittedly, I, I showed up quite ignorant, kind of thinking Ukrainians were Russia light. And, or maybe you should say Russians are Ukrainian like, but the, they were not. And I think part of that assumption is because of that history of Russia trying to control them or actually controlling them. I didn't know this, but even like, uh, the, the whole saying of Potemkin villages, mm-hmm. those were villages in Crimea that, um, the, for Catherine the Great, they wanted to show her, you know, there's a lot of lore around that people could look it up, but it just goes to show that this is a long time that they've been controlling them. And then you go into the last hundred years and the Soviet Union controlling them. And so then it's in 19, and so massive Soviet influence, first just raw Russian influence, then Soviet influence. And then you got 1991, uh, Ukraine and all the other Soviet bloc countries declare independence, Estonia, Latvia, you name it, around there. So Russia or Ukraine declares independence. Then they have the Orange Revolution on the path and then in 2014, the Maidan revolution is basically, it's a three month over winter. There's a great documentary on Netflix called Winter on Fire, I think. And all the young people really wanted to go West, Western in values, Western in markets to trade with Europe. And they were going to, the government was going to sign a pre-trade agreement basically, and then last minute pulled back. And so the Ukrainian people 
protested, very disciplined about trying to be peaceful. They sustained the protests for over three months, and eventually it led to their president fleeing to Russia in the middle of the night. And that you watched the documentary, I don't need to go into it yet. Yeah. 2014. Yeah. So this is an important data point. It's it's a very important data point because that's when you got more separation of powers. That's when the the presidential election kind Mm -hmm. of kicked in a bit more. That also means, you know, these are very limited metaphors, but it's almost like their 91 is 1776. And then the orange revolutions like their 1787. And then 2014 is like their war of 1812. You know, in a way, and I, I only bring that up because like it takes time to stand yep. up a country yeah. Yeah. and we're kind of like these damn Ukrainians are the, the, right. the debate in the United States is like these damn Ukrainians don't know what they're doing. So here's another data point right after this revolution where they kick out the president, they schedule free elections right after this is when Putin invaded Crimea. And I didn't connect with timing on this right after that. So it takes Crimea and then 2019 is when Zelensky was elected. elected. So he's in his first term and he would be if there is no war. And he was ele- elected as a reformer, as uh, running against corruption, running against oligarchs, trying to stand up the country. And in a way, you know, we have all these, in some cases when we're trying to, there's these wave of populist candidates, but let me be more generous and just say there's a wave of change candidates, not just populist. Cause I, I would even, you know, in the US you had Obama, I have Trump, like people are just tired of it. And it's sort of a, this is sort of a worldwide phenomenon. And that was Ukraine's. And so here you have like hundreds of years of Russian control. Putin gave a speech in the leading up to the war. It's a 65, not speech, essay, 6,500 word essay where he's making kind of like establishing a moral argument for why he is justified. And, and he's drawing on a deep cultural history in Russia, correct? Yeah. He is basically saying Ukrainians are ours. And he, there's some silly things in the essay. He celebrates in a way the USSR. One thing as a quick aside, when we did our trip, we did another trip to Russia for the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And it was interesting to see how they were trying to downplay Lenin because uh, he's a revolutionary and they don't want instability, but they were upplaying Stalin because he brought greatness and he brought order here triumphant USSR. And so you saw the flavor of that in this essay about, and, and I think, so I think in other words, what I'm saying is that I think there is merit to the argument that the ambitions are a lot more imperialistic on Russia's part. So one, he goes and he's taking, uh, he's making the argument that even by way of language, Ukraine means outpost. It means Russian outpost. So he's basically saying these are ours. Ukrainian, he says things like Ukraine can't do things without Russia, never has, never can. And so he's just saying they need us and they're ours. So we're fully justified to take them. And then you have these sort of like, you know, more unstated publicly much of like, well, NATO and Americans are encircling him. You have those types of arguments. And then you have, um, they're not made in this essay, but I know this surrounds this. And then also that, oh, the Ukrainians, they need to be denazified and they're a national threat to Russia. And that was why he mobilized them on the border and then invaded and the whole thing. And, and I, I do think that he would have taken the whole country and there'd be some form of genocide. The Ukrainians have not fought back. But going back to your, so I'm just trying to get that context mm-hmm. to your question of like, well, what, where does this go? I think it's possible that Russia, as we understand it, would not exist in the next 50 years. Putin's very old. It's the black box. Mm-hmm. No one really knows. There is a very Russian way of thinking that's not just Putin. There's also the other- Wagner- uprising happened literally right after where we guys got back yeah and the counteroffensive was also started mm-hmm. as we were 
I think while we were there, they're getting ready to launch it. And a lot of news about it. So some of the arguments are like, you know, land for peace, like give up Crimea or give up some of the land that Russia wants mm-hmm. or uh, like the Ukrainian positions generally is just like 91 quarters. Mm-hmm. So we want Crimea back. We want everything that you're occupying back. And that's, that's the whole point, but it's kind of a, a bit of a standstill there. So uh, another conversation, nuclear power, nuclear arms, nuclear attack, and sent, I'm paraphrasing, but a sentiment among a lot of the Ukrainians was then on the one hand, then, then we will know what, who Putin and the Russians really are. Mm-hmm. And they will sort of seal their fate as being a pariah in the world. Even China would back off. Mm-hmm. And China wants a piece of business in Ukraine mm-hmm. going forward, but they're watching it. You know, there's a rising parade of dictators out there. And I think if Ukraine loses it, they, they're going to be emboldened. There's also the kind of, well, I'm going to, I risk going on the tangent or a rabbit hole. But I think I'll just summarize with this, that whether it's a nuclear attack of like, let's just see what Russia, if they're going to do it, fine. Everybody will mobilize. We'll have clarity. We'll have closure. We'll know. There's another kind of point of view that's like, well, I'm not going to be, we're not going to be held hostage to this threat because we want to live our lives and we're not going to do that anymore. Right. I remember something like Walensa told us on one of the trips when he said that, like Walensa, the Polish revolutionary, he said uh, when he was thinking about starting a revolution, he didn't really think of it as a revolution in the earlier days and just trying to organize workers. He said something that if I had been, a, if I was too much of a revolutionary, I could risk nuclear war. And that's a terrifying thing to yeah, yeah. Like you're choosing to yeah. suffer or fight mm-hmm. and destabilize. There's a bit of that attitude too. And then lastly, there was the, just like, it's not that binary. It's not like you go from Russia or you, you don't go from regional conflict war to nuclear attack overnight. There was one other interesting point on history, uh, on our closing dinner, we were meeting with an American national security leader and he opened with a story about a leaked cable to MI6 and it's, it's a leaked cable, a Russian, I think a Bolshevik informant about to the UK saying something like the Ukrainians will never go easily. All the arguments for why Russia wants them grain Mm-hmm. ports, the, uh, the whole, the history, the everything. And, but he's saying they'll never going to go easily. And that was over a hundred years ago. Yeah. Same, literally yeah. same, 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 same. And so we, I managed to track that, the leak cable down, but it just goes to show like this stuff is, it yeah. runs deep. It's historic. It's existential. And it's viewed in like almost the cultural DNA. I mean, it's a, this is a very random tangent, but. Having grown up in Cleveland, Cleveland is a very ethnic town, steel town at the turn of the century, the 19th and 20th. And there's a, there's a lot of Eastern European, Poles, Ukrainians. And I think of that work ethic and that sort of like grittiness. Yeah. Hunger is, yeah. It's like, uh, anyway. One thing I was, it was pretty impressive. Like we, another, uh, profound insight is like li- literally the American What's driving the cultural conversation, the zeitgeist in the United mm-hmm. States is like, was about Bud Light. Mm-hmm. And at the time. At the time. There, yeah. It was like, you know, Bud Light and Robert De Niro as a kid. And, and then meanwhile, we're, we're among people who are fighting for survival right. for themselves and for their kids and fighting to build a free country. Like they yeah. want representative government. They want to be pluralistic. They want to rid corruption. They want markets. They want competition. They want all these things. And, Look, some things 
they got to get their stuff together, but they're a young country yeah, yeah, and have been in the shadows, you know, the swampy sort of shadows of uh, a lot of empire. And so it's going to be hard, but there's enough leadership and effort there. Also, they're very young uh, leadership. Well, I, I know. I mean, so for me, I mean, to your point about, again, you just said earlier, but what come keep going to mind is the juxtaposition of life in the U.S. or life in the far West and a place like Ukraine. And even, I mean, I think a lot of what was hard in the last 20 years of conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan is the average soldier who was deployed and then came home to a life where most people were not been aware of what was happening. Yeah. And that is just a hard, that's really a hallmark of modern life and of protracted conflict. And so I wonder for you, what is, I mean, in order, you know, to have a sustained commitment, there needs to be an under, some sort of undergirding moral argument. What is the reason for commitment here? What do you see the moral argument it for our commitment to Ukraine? I think Americans should always stand against oppression and for free people. People who want to be free. And, and, and look, I'm not saying that, I mean, even early on in our history, uh, you know, I think it was John Quincy Adams was like, we don't want to go around slaying dragons mm -hmm. because our worldview is expansive. Like we want all people, our declaration, all people are born free. That doesn't mean that we need to go fight every war and battle, but, and it does, it is sad because you see there's Ukraine, there's people in North Korea, people in Venezuela, mm -hmm. the women in a rave mm -hmm. who are trying, I mean, like yeah, yeah. real, you know, Myanmar and you name it. It's sad, but what you see here is this confluence of factor. One, the moral argument is they have a clear existential threat. Two, they have demonstrated a real desire to be free and try to get things right. They're still wrestling with things like corruption. They, they while we were there, right before we were there, they arrested a judge who was uh, a corrupt judge. Mm. And we had an interesting conversation with one of their cabinet, recent cabinet officials about that, by the way. And he was saying, there's a lot of things we have to clean up by way of culture and norms, by way of institutions, by way of laws, you know, just take to give it a, a, an illustration of how complex that these are is like they prioritized policing and patrol reform to make sure cops aren't getting bought off and they had to work their way all the way up through the judicial system. And so the, the arrest of the judge is they were saying like, that's, that's not an example of how bad and corrupt they are. That's an example of how they're Good working progress. their way through yeah. uh, progress, but which was pretty impressive to sort of see them wrestling through that. But that's one. Also, they are trying to have more of a pluralistic society that has a different representation of, of different types of people. There's different factions. What is the rough demographic? I mean, you mentioned oh. Jews earlier, like the Jewish, you know, the, the genocide, but this what is, is the current state both Ethnic, I don't know enough about Yeah, I, I'm not an expert on this. This is, it, it's like you get a lot of older Cossacks and uh, I'm blanking on a bunch of the different older ethnic groups, but there's, there, there, of course, there's the Jews, there's ethnic Ukrainians, there's Russian Ukrainians that just like now this is their land. Mm -hmm. One thing that's interesting is we looked at a lot of like military footage or GoPro footage from the front lines and you hear a lot of like, well, they're, you know, I'll hear a camera argument in the U.S. of like, well, these are, Russia's just taking Russian, like Ukrainian territory. And we pay close attention to the Ukrainians fighting Russians. The Ukrainians are speaking Russian. You got to keep in mind, they've been under Russian control for a really long time and not their language, but it doesn't mean that that those are my mm -hmm. people, that's my country, that's right. my identity. So it's, it's, uh, it's not nearly as diverse as like the United States, mm -hmm. but I think that they try to have a level of diversity and a standard of of free people and justice and even in a war context. 
that they certainly are holding themselves to a higher standard than Russia is. Mm-hmm. And what's weird, another weird angle is that Russia's, I want to go back to a point you made about what we're fighting for, or mm-hmm. the moral argument, because I was talking to a few friends of mine about this, and they were like, there's a lot of problems in the United States today. Mm-hmm. The border, our education system, debt. Why is this a priority for us? And so one of them is that I think that morally of free people. Two, the dictators are watching to see what we and other free people will do if we're willing to help mm-hmm. other free people. And if we're not, they will take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty terrifying thing to see. The and, and and so in a way, it is a proxy war. Like, and I think this is where it's we're bleeding. Yeah. We're the, like Russians are bleeding out. Yeah. Um, financially and with their people and they're an adversary of the of the united states and so you have this real politic kind of dynamic there mm-hmm. which is like hey we don't have to have boots on the ground and that's kind of harsh and tough to swallow but you also have this sort of more romantic these are people just trying to survive yeah, and be yeah. free well and i think your point i mean so so the moral argument that as a nation the commitment to freedom and people who are oppressed is at the core of the founding of America. The question is then, and I think this is what I wrestle with. I mean, I, very few people will disagree with that. The question is then that that is the moral argument. And then how that becomes, for lack of a better term, operationalized in national security strategy, it's very complex because of long protracted conflict, because of the reality of human systems, the turnover. I remember one of my good friends said, was reflecting on the Afghan campaign and said, we fought 20 wars one year at a time. And the subtext of that was uh, the different commanders who came in roughly every year, you had a new commander come in, in some component, the nature of turnover. And so either way you had people, you know, making slight adjustments or different strategic focus. And so I grapple with thinking just the, the myriad of recent examples of where the U S got drawn into a protracted conflict and what should like, what should the marrying of a moral argument with blood treasure resources be and that's a that's one that i don't actually know the answer to and it's it's why i these conversations fascinate because i think it's actually got more complex in the year 2020. i don't think i'm thinking of a metaphor like the difference between a flashlight and a lantern and flashlight just wants to point at an answer a lantern wants to sort of light the environment and you could work your way through and i i tend to think of it more in like that lantern sort of way well one data point is you have people who are really at risk of being destroyed. You also have the same people want to be free. And then you also have a potentially rapidly changing geopolitical landscape where you have a more emboldened dictator class because we've been overstretched for some of the reasons you've said. And there's a lot of fatigue among Americans. There's a lot of just complacency. Like we're a rich country that takes a lot of this stuff for granted. We haven't had a real conflict, shared sacrifice, real conflict in a very, very long time. Yeah. And I was talking to one of my friends who was talking, who was saying like, I just don't think it's a priority. And I totally understand that. And I think that's a worthwhile conversation that we have thoughtfully, mm-hmm. not in this sort of like, yeah, yeah, this by me yeah, yeah, yeah. or Twitter. But one thing I was telling him is like, you, you know, when you see the loss and striving for something that we take for granted every moment of every day, and you see other people doing yeah. that, it certainly puts it in perspective for us. And I think by us paying attention to the plight of people here in the United States who are trying to have some upward mobility mm-hmm. to people around the world who are being oppressed, yeah. you really understand that like freedom is very precious. Totally. One, One because dark horses want to take it, but it 
it's really hard to know, just like it's hard to be a good person. It's mm-hmm. hard to be a free people. Totally. I mean, one of the axioms I've landed on is that certainly not necessarily for wars and other conflicts, but, but I think if everybody traveled and had the opportunity to travel internationally, particularly to places that were certainly beyond the traditional frameworks that we know in the West. And when it comes to a country like the United States, I think that just reframes how you think about your day-to-day life in a really powerful way. Totally. And I think that's where I, I think polarization comes from people looking through the prism of a lens they don't realize how fortunate it, it is. We have like, there's this very performative quality to how we share our opinions mm-hmm. today. I mean, it's all overwhelmingly done through social media mm-hmm. and not done through discourse. Mm-hmm. And so the polarization today, I don't think it's any worse than it was in previous times. After all, we did fight a civil war, but it's more grating uh, and corrosive because it's more brittle. Like there's no depth mm-hmm. to balance it out. Yeah. You have to have nuance. There's, and, yeah, there's, and, and there's no dogmatic depth. about something. You can't have nuance. Yeah. There's, there's no depth. There's no, uh, yeah. there's not nearly enough depth, not nearly enough thoughtfulness and, and really weighing on these things. One conversation is just the pure moral, like, oh, this is really sad. There's also a geopolitical, like mm-hmm. there are countries moving and advancing and protecting their interests. Like that's not going to go away. And that's, a, it's just, a, it's a, it's a big foreign affairs international politics strategy game that also is at play. And we just have to be able to look at sort of the whole picture. And then you have a country trying to get on its feet. I don't think there's a neat, there's not a perfect answer. I do think arming them, putting on principle, holding them accountable to the progress that they say they want to make, all those things should be on the table. But I do worry about an America that just sort of says we don't care about these things. And it's, by the way, in our history, it's never served us well to ignore it with mm-hmm. ignore these bad things that have gone on in the world well, and it's so also that, doesn't that, serve us to go have swagger all over the place yeah so you know but i don't think that it has to be that binary also on that note it's if you've been listening this far hopefully it's kept you michael's kept you engaged in what is clearly very complex and it still fascinates me but on that note you know you you, you had how many members were i mean here yeah no on the delegation of oh, 50 15 15 i'm curious what your what surprised you the most? And then what do you think was most surprising for the members coming out of that trip? Well, I'll tell you some of that. We had some members go who were critics, just mm-hmm. want to say critics. They, mm-hmm. they skeptical or very skeptical, yeah. very cri- critical. Healthy. Like this is a waste of our money. Yeah. We have other problems here. Yeah. And man, God bless, God bless them. They went to understand, like they didn't seek confirmation bias. They're mm-hmm. like, well, I have, I care about these things. I have strong views about it and I have a chance to go there and see it. I'm going to go. And they did. I would say it was brave, even though when you, you know, there's missiles being launched, you sort of feel like you're being brave, but I, you know, the Ukrainians are being brave. We certainly got out of our comfort zone. So there was that group of people. They, I think had the same, that group, I probably sympathize with more because I might've been closer to that camp, Uh, just not as critical, probably more in that direction because I have sort of just a general suspicion or trying to make sense of all the information I'm getting. And I don't trust a lot of it right now about anything. But when we were, that group was like, wow, these Ukrainians are not, they just need arms. They need weapons. Like when they say, I, I don't want your boots on the ground. I don't want you to fight the war for me. I just, I just need the weapons. Mm-hmm. I think that was spoken very loud and clear. I think for another takeaway was about back home and how, how shallow the 
to the extent that there is any discourse or discussion here in the United States. And so I remember one of the, one of our members said that they're fighting for American values better than we are. And so they're, so they came home with a bit more alertness yeah. to being good Americans. Yeah. And so that includes everything from, I want to understand our history better. I want to understand our values better. I want to understand how precious this is. I want to be a better steward and messenger for our ideas and our country. I want to be able to engage with people and ideas better. I want to spend money to help them out. So that was a big one. I think also how the level of violence and the risk of genocide is that 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 country faces and those people face is another big takeaway. And then I think another takeaway was just an acceptance that this is not going to be a neat, there's not a neat solution or a neat plan. Even if you have simple, simple kind of parameters, like 91 borders, that's success. You, you could have that, but there's still like a, a many, many variables. And we tend to, as even when we study history, we just see like facts, figures, triumphant people. But when you were in it, it didn't work out that way. Like I love sure. learning about D-Day yeah, and it's epic and it's amazing and it's inspiring. But when you study D-Day leading up to it and in it, it was messy. Yeah, yeah. Like modern life would never allow that type of courage and risk yeah. to be undergone. And so I think we, we have to embrace that. And I, I think cynicism runs high. Comfort runs high. It's a dangerous combination. It's like you could, it's a privilege and the leisure to have strong opinions that are really totally uninformed. And it, it again, it doesn't not to say that you have to be rah, rah Ukraine. It just means study up yeah, and, and engage in it. And so I think everybody who was there had a big awareness. It was like, wow, the idea of freedom requires constant vigilance and constant effort, constant struggle. And they're in it. Yep. They're an example of it. And we have to take, we have to sustain the spirit of that. And there was also appreciation that the whole idea of free people, born free with free systems, that did not exist in the world pre-1776. Mm. And in a, in a way, that's, that's our contribution to the world forever. And that's what we want our kids to steward. And so it's behooves us to, I think at a, at a soul level, but also practical to sort of know what we should do, what we should stand for, to pay attention to what's going on in these parts of the world and what they're struggling for, while paying attention to it here in our own, uh, and how these ideas animate in our own lives, Very on a cool. day-to-day basis. Well, that's what, uh, that's all their play. Amen. Really, really cool. Generational solution. On the, uh, well, thank you for the wisdom. Uh, for those who are listening this far, appreciate you taking the, the dive here in the rodeo, the first one. Uh, one thing for the, when's the next delegation or where is it, Mike? Where is it going to be? We haven't announced this yet, so don't know it's being recorded. So don't hold me to it until it's announced, but we're looking at Israel. Nice. Israel in very, very end of February, going into early March. And, and especially with the Abraham Accords, I think the real kind of soulful, humanist kind of side of Balder, of, you, you know, these ancient civilizations. I think that's going to be an interesting faith, interfaith dialogue, a hot spot geopolitically. I would say that I, I spent all the years studying national security, the world, geopolitics. And when I was in Jerusalem, I felt like everything crystallized. Like, I wish I had gone there Ooh. when I was 22. I feel like we need to do a podcast. We'll end our Ukraine discussion here. Thank, Thank you, brother. Thank you, Thank listeners. Until next time. Cheers.